Thank you very much, Pastor Werner, for the kind introduction, for the invitation. I'd always wanted to come to Australia, and I never saw a way to, to come over here. <laughs> and the Lord was kind enough to make it possible, finally. And it's a great privilege to be in your midst. It's always wonderful to see smiley faces in front of me. And to know that you believe in the same Savior as I believe in. Hallelujah. And his name is Jesus Christ, right? And the cross is the center of our faith. Amen. Right. We believe in his substitutionary atonement as it was uh, taught to us or quoted from scripture early on today. And that should really be our guiding thought even for that sermon. A sermon should never be something which is boring. Right. Never something where we think, well, okay, we have to get through it, we have to suffer through it, and then afterwards or before that we can sing songs. No, the sermon is the sender, because God speaks to us through His Word, right? He has given us His divine revelation so that we can know Him, and worship Him, and follow Him, and serve Him. And so we need to listen very carefully to what he has to, to tell us, what he wants us to know about him. The more we know him, the more we know us. The closer we get to him, the more we realize how sinful we truly are. If you step into the light, right, you see better what is around you. God is pure light, God is holy, God is infinite. If we come into his presence, we do see the dark spots in our lives. But thank be to Jesus Christ because he came to offer forgiveness. He came to offer grace. He came to offer us eternal life in his presence. And this is just a wonderful thought which I just want to share with you. I sent greetings for my wife and my two children. Unfortunately, they couldn't come with me. It's a long way to come over here. <laughs> and my wife has some duties at home to fulfill, so she, she couldn't come, but she would have liked to come. She said, I'm very envious of you. <laughs> Had she known how long it takes from Los Angeles to <laughs> Brisbane, she would not as, be as envious <laughs> in a very small seat. But we made it. By the grace of God, we made it. And I'm very glad to be here, and I was very warmly welcomed. And really, the privilege is on my side. The pleasure is on my side to stay with uh, the, uh, Pastor uh, Werner and his wife as well as with Pastor Jeff and his wife and family up in Brisbane. It was a wonderful time. I was able to spend with them. Last Sunday I was preaching in the church in Brisbane, and it was just, once again, a wonderful occasion. And it's just, to, it's just nice to know, to have a few more new friends. <laughs> I used to work at a mission station, and the mission director always before he started preaching he always said Lord open my mouth that my lips may proclaim your praise and that is really the purpose of a sermon right 
The Lord speaks to me so that I can speak to you in order for us together to praise Him. That is really the purpose of a sermon. Revelation 5, 1 to 10 is really a very special uh, portion of Scripture to me because there was a time in my life when I wanted to write a PhD thesis on a portion of the New Testament at the University of Aberdeen and the Lord led me to select Revelation chapter 5. So I wanted to spend three years full time from morning till evening to think about one chapter <laughs> for three years. And I can assure you, even if I would have done so, the Lord uh, changed these plans. And I can't go into the details, but I was not able to do what I had set out. I... Um, I did something else eventually. However, there are certain portions of Scripture, if you open the Bible and you start reading, you are utterly overwhelmed by what is written in these certain portions. And I'm very well aware of the fact that that particular passage exceeds my understanding. And I have spent decades studying the New Testament, the Old Testament. But it does exceed my understanding. So I know my limitation. I know that I cannot expound the meaning of that passage to the extent I need to. And yet we will do our best. But ultimately... My goal is that we will see Jesus as Jesus has been revealed to us in this particular passage. We need to get a clear understanding who Jesus is. And it will be challenging, I know, it's challenging for me. Because I see myself as a sinful human being in the presence of the Almighty God. And yes, I bow my knees, I confess my sins, I humble myself before Him. And yet, He still is that infinite God who fills the universe. Right? There's a verse in Jeremiah which says, The heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain you. We have to get a glimpse of who God is. And this will change our life. Let us open the Bibles together and read that particular passage, Revelation 5, 1 to 10. When I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. When one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. 
He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. When I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of his throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the hand, right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they song, sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them in, uh, to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and by the rain on the earth. Today I want you to think seriously about what makes a person truly beautiful and truly excellent, admirable and praiseworthy. My goal is that you might come to see Jesus Christ as irresistibly admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. That you would be drawn to love Him and to trust Him and to give your full allegiance to Him. The principle that I'm trying to illustrate that makes Christ stand out as absolutely unique is the following. Beauty and excellence consists in the right proportions of diverse qualities. The right proportion of diverse qualities. For example, we admire Jesus Christ for His glory, but even more so because His glory is mingled with humility. We admire Him for His transcendence, but even more so because His transcendence is accompanied by condescension. We admire him for his uncompromising justice. But even more so because it is tempered with mercy. We admire him for his majesty. But even more so because it is a majesty in meekness. We admire him because of his equality with God but even more so because as God's equal, he nevertheless has a deep reverence for God. We admire him because of how worthy he was of all good, but even more so because this was accompanied by an amazing patience to suffer evil. 
being Malchim because of his sovereign dominion over the world, but even more so because this dominion was clothed with a spirit of obedience and submission. We love the way he stumped the broad scribes. And we love it even more because it could be simple enough to like children and to spend time with them. We admire him because he could still the storm, but even more so because he refused to use that power to strike the Samaritans with lightning and he refused to use it to get himself down from a cross. The list could go on and on. Do you see what I mean when I say that beauty and excellence in a person is not a simple thing? It is very complex. It is a coming together in one person of a perfect balance and proportion of extremely diverse qualities. And that's what makes Jesus Christ so irresistibly admirable and excellent. You will never get to a point where you can say, say, I know him now. Right? There will be always something you will have to learn anew or discover for the first time. And Jesus Christ will become even more admirable and excellence, excellent to you. The human heart was made to stand in awe of ultimate excellence. We are made to worship. We are made to worship. We are made to worship the highest aspect of excellence. The highest aspect of divinity. And that point appears to us in a person, a person by the name of Jesus Christ. You are made to admire Jesus Christ as the Son of God, wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And if your heart is not much taken up with Him, then you don't need to look any further to know the deepest source of your frustration. A student once asked Bonaventure, the Franciscan monk, why don't love men, why don't a man love God more? And he answered, why don't love him because they don't know him. That's the way I feel about Christ this morning. Surely, if I can display for you just a glimpse of his excellency, you will love him. You will trust him. You will follow him no matter the cost. Just a little glimpse of him. That would be enough to love him more. 
to trust Him, to follow Him, to serve Him. This is my deepest desire for you and me for this particular Sunday morning. I begin with a text by directing your attention to Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. John is receiving a vision of a throne room in heaven. When one of the elders said to me, Weep not, lo, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So Jesus here is described as a lion. An animal that makes prey of others and who is strong and wild and majestic and dangerous. But then in verse 6, John is allowed to see this lion. But what does he see? What does he see? What he sees must have made him to be utterly surprised. It was a complete surprise to him. Especially after listening to the words of the elder in verse 5. He was expecting to see a lion, the lion of Judah. That was what he expected to see. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So the lion is a lamb, an animal that is easily preyed upon, but is weak and harmless and lowly, sheared for our clothes and killed for our food. So here is the point that I want to make this morning. Because Jesus... It's a lion like lamb and a lamb like lion. He has the right to bring the world to an end for the glory of his name and the good of his people. To see how this truth comes about of a text and comes in expound in regards to the meaning of that particular passage. Let us make three preliminary observations. Number one. The first is that God is absolute in control of all future history and everything that happens in it. He's in absolute control of all future history and everything which happens in it. This is a point of verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. What is this scroll with its writings on both sides and its seven seals? The scroll represents the degrees of God concerning what will happen in the future. You can see this in chapter 6. As one seal after another is opened... And more and more is revealed of a judgment coming on the earth. Opening the first seal in chapter 6, verses 1 to 2, reveals a rider on a white horse going out to conquer. 
The imagery of the four horsemen comes from Zechariah chapter 1 verses 8 to 17 and chapter 6 verses 1 to 8. The colors in Revelation correspond to a character of a rider. Based on the text, white symbolizes conquest. Major interpretations of a rider on the white horse are first Christ. We could look into Revelation 19 verse 11. Second, the Antichrist. And third, the spirit of conquest. The letter establishes a more natural sequence with the other three riders which symbolize bloodshed, famine, and death. So we could say, we see here the reality of conquest, bloodshed, famine, and death. Opening the second seal in verses 3 to 4 reveal a red horse signifying how in the days leading up to the end of the world, men would slay one another with the sword. The opening of the third and fourth seals point to famine and other judgments. And so on it goes. As Christ opens the seals of the scroll and displays for John what was going to happen in the future. The one who opens the seals reveals and executes the decrees of God. So the scroll contains God's plan for the future. The struggles and victories of the gospel as well as the judgments on those who reject it. The opening of the seals is the course of history leading up to the end. And the rest of the scroll is the story of the end of the world and the final triumph of God's kingdom. Now notice that the scroll is in the right hand of God. Verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. God holds all of the future in his right hand. All of it. He wrote the script for what will take place and no one can change it. He has it in his own right hand. If a kingdom of Christ finally conquers and judgment finally falls on the unbelieving world, it will be because God holds all things firmly in his right hand. We notice that he is called the one who was seated on the throne. This simply confirms that he rules the universe. He is a ruler. His throne represents his right and authority and power to govern the world the way he sees fit. The completeness of his rule and the perfection of his decrees is signified by the fact that the scroll is written within and on its back. In other words, the scroll is packed full with the details of God's plans for this world. 
There are no spaces for later additions. It's packed full, inside and out. And the one who wrote the scroll is God himself. There are no spaces for later editions as though the king of the universe could overlook some eventuality. The plan is complete. It is full. It is safe in the right hand of a king. And he is on the throne. Meaning he can fulfill. Right? He can fulfill what he has set out to accomplish. Do you agree with me? He sits on the throne. The future is in his hands. He knows the future and he can bring it about. What we learn from this is that we ought to submit to the authority of our king. If he sits on the throne, I'm not the one sitting on the throne. You are not the one sitting on the throne. That means I need to bow my knees in front of the one who holds the authority over that universe as well as over my own life. I need to bow to his authority. I need to submit to him. What we learn from this is that he is also our creator. Look in chapter 4 verse 11. He is the rule of all things. The picture of God's sovereign rule over all that will happen should bring us to our faces in reverence and fear. That's the first preliminary observation. Second, The second observation is no creature in the universe is worthy to reveal and execute the final decrees of God. Let me repeat this again. No creature in the universe is worthy to reveal and execute the final decrees of God. Verses 2 to 3. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. No one. Why does God himself simply remove the seals of the scroll of history and reveal its content and bring about the consummation of his kingdom? Why doesn't he do it himself? We will see the answer in just a moment when we read why Christ was qualified to open the seals. But in advance, the answer is that the end of history contained in this scroll is going to bring about astonishing privileges and happiness to repentant sinners who deserve only condemnation that God would be unrighteous to bring it to pass by himself. It would look as though he didn't care that we have trampled his glory in the dirt. It would 
look as though he could just sweep our sins under the rug of the universe. Something must be done to demonstrate the righteousness of God if the opening of this scroll is going to bring infinite blessing upon repentant sinners who deserve only condemnation. If God were to open the scroll himself without any mediator, without any go-between, and deal directly with sinful man, we would all be consumed. And there would be no salvation at all. You cannot approach God directly. You need a mediator. If you want to have an encounter with God Almighty, you would not stand a second in His presence. Someone must be found who is worthy to take the scroll and open it. And the point of verses 2 and 3 is that there is no creature in all of the universe who can do it. No angel in heaven, no man on earth, no devil in hell can touch this scroll and do what needs to be done to bring the consummation of the kingdom. None. So the lessons we learn from this second observation could be many. I just mentioned two. First, that God is a God of love because He will not open the seals of history without the hand of a Savior. Second, let no one, not your friend, not your spouse, or parents, or child, or boss, or teacher, no one but Jesus can make your future bright. Without Him, all is meaningless and fearful. You need Jesus. You need Him more than the, the air you breathe in. Apart from Him, everything, as I already said, said is meaningless and fearful. If you rely on your spouse, or you, on your child, or your parents, or your friend, or your boss, or your teacher, you will be sorely disappointed. They cannot give you what you truly need. You need the Lord of life to sustain you every moment of your existence, every moment of your earthly life. You need Jesus. I cannot imagine how someone can live or at least exist without knowing Jesus Christ. If you know Him, if you realize that apart from Him, your life would be utterly meaningless and pointless and frustrating and painful, hopeless, you will be motivated to go out and proclaim a gospel. Because there are lots of people around you who do not know Jesus yet. Who need to be saved. Look into your own life. 
how Jesus changed you. Right? There's one verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17. Is someone in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, everything has become new. Who did it? Is anyone in Christ? There's only one who can do it. So this means that with Jesus, our future is bright. Number three, which leads us very briefly to a third observation from verse four. And I have wept much, but no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. A third observation is that without Christ, there is only weeping. I wept much. Without Christ, there is nothing else. Nothing else. And this is reality. Nothing else but weeping. If there is no one found who is worthy to open the scroll, then there will be no triumph for the gospel, no marriage supper for with the Lamb, no new heaven and new earth, no eternal life, only weeping. Therefore, Jesus Christ is utterly necessary for every one of us. He alone is worthy to open the seals and execute the final decrees of God. And the keyword is He only. There's no one else. That brings us to verse 5 and 6. And they lead us straight back to the main point where we began this exposition of the scriptures. Because Jesus is a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion, he has the right to bring the world to an end for the glory of his name and the good of his people. Now let's read verse 5 again in the light of the three observations we have made. When one of the elders said to me, Weep not, lo, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. There is one person, and only one, who can open the scroll, namely the lion of Judah. And the reason that he is worthy to open the scroll is that he has conquered. But what does this conquering refer to? We can see that clearly in verse 9. Here the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fall down and worship the Lamb. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Now notice carefully the relationship between verse 5 and verse 9. In verse 5, the reason the line of Judah can open the scroll is that he has conquered. 
in verse 9, the reason he can open the scroll is because he was slain and by his blood ransomed men for God. So what is it? The lion who conquered or the lamb who was slain? What is it? How can we reconcile these two truths and understand who Jesus truly is? In other words, his right to open the scroll, and that's the answer, his right to open the scroll is owing to the fact that he ransomed people for God by his death. And this ransoming was the victory referred to in verse 5. That's the way how these two truths, which seem so utterly uh, different, can be reconciled with each other. What sort of lion was he? He was a lamb-like lion. The Lion of Judah conquered because he was willing to act the part of a lamb. He came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday like a king on the way to a throne. And he went out of Jerusalem on Good Friday like a lamb on the way to the slaughter. He drove out the robbers from a temple like a lion devouring its prey. And then at the end of the week he gave his majestic neck to the knife. And they slaughtered the line of Judah like a lamb. So he conquered sin and death and Satan. Not just because he was a lion, but because he was a Lamb-like lion. It was one of those classic tactical defeats that results in a strategic victory. Jonathan Edwards captures the paradox of a victorious loser with another familiar comparison. I'm quoting from one of his works. The devil had, as it were, swallowed up Christ, as the veil did Jonah, but it was deadly poison to him. He gave him a mortal wound in his own bowels. He was soon sick of his morsel and was forced to do by him as the veil did by Jonah. To this day, he is heart sick of what he then swallowed as his prey. End of quote. The lion gets the victory through the tactics of the lamb. That's the main truth of that passage. Let me repeat it again. The lion gets the victory through the tactics of the lamb. You could use another Old Testament comparison to show the same thing, namely Samson. Once again, Jonathan Edward continues to write, quote, And thus the true Samson does more towards the destruction of his enemies at his death than in his life. In yielding up himself to death, he pulls down the temple of Dagon 
and destroys many thousands of his enemies, even while they are making themselves sport in his suffering. End of quote. But Lion Samson gets the decisive victory when he takes the role of a sacrificial lamb and dies. So it is with Christ. The line of Judah, the root of David, has conquered sin and death and Satan. And in regards to all of these three categories, death, sin and Satan, I, I have at least two scriptural references in the New Testament. I could quote many more. But it is a very well established fact in the New Testament that Christ conquered death, sin and Satan. And he did it when he took the role of a lamb and died. That's how he did it. This is why the cross is so central. You take the cross out of the picture of Christianity and you lose everything. You lose everything. There is no cross less Christianity. That is a total perversion. The old rugged cross, this is our symbol. A dying Savior on the cross and his triumph on Easter morning when he resurrected bodily. This is what Christianity is all about. You better believe that. And believe it literally. Put your entire trust on that particular fact. This is what saves you. But not, not only is he a lamp like lion, he's also a lion like lamp. Yes, you get the picture. I'm very glad to know it. Verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamp standing as though it had been slain with seven horns. Seven horns. That's a funny picture, right? A lamb which has seven horns. Or rather a peculiar, funny in the sense of peculiar image. Take note of two things which stand out in this passage right away. First, notice where the lamb is standing. Remember, it was a lamb slain. All of a sudden we see a lamb standing. We have to know the difference. The lamb is standing. It is not slumped in a heap on the ground as it was once was. It had been slain, but now it is standing. Standing in the innermost circle next to the throne. Second, notice that the lamb has seven horns. A horn is a symbol of strength and power throughout the entire book of Revelation. Strength and power. Once again, I could quote at least four different verses out of that book alone, which give us enough information to know that the horn is that symbol of power and strength. 
But number seven signifies fullness and completeness. Meaning if a lamp has seven horns, it is utterly powerful. He has complete strength. Nothing is lacking. Nothing. He can do everything. There's nothing too hard for him. Nothing is too hard for Jesus. Fullness and completeness. So this is no ordinary lamb. He's a lion-like lamb. Look at chapter 6 verse 16. The man called to the mountains and rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And look at chapter 17, verse 14. Chapter 17, verse 14, the final enemies of God fight against Christ. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's no ordinary lamb. I hope you get the picture now. He's standing in the innermost part of heaven next to the throne of God. He has all power. And his enemies will be utterly defeated. Because he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. In other words, he is a lion like lamb. In the Revelation 5 verse 9, John tells us why Jesus is worthy to open the book of the end of history so that things unfold according to the plan of God. Jesus is worthy because of how his death relates to all the races and tribes of the earth. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. The reason Jesus has the right to open the book of history is because by his death he ransomed people for God, for the glory of God and the worship of God from every tribe, tongue, people and nation. So it was God's design in the atonement, in the death of Jesus to ransom from every kind of race and language and to make them into one kingdom. I'm very pleased to stand in front of you today because I'm a demonstration of the truth of that fact. I come from a very far away country, and so does Pastor Werner, and some of you too. From Germany and some other countries, from Greece and some other countries. That fact is true. You are proving it. I am proving it. I speak in a funny 
And so that's passed around. <laughs> so you should be used to that kind of strange talk, right? <laughs> we are the proof of the truth of that particular aspect. And this is a glorious truth. Right? We are one kingdom. We all belong to the people of God. No matter how we talk, no matter how we look like, there will be only one king. That is, they would all live with a consuming desire to glory in the majestic supremacy of God in all things. That is what would unite them, the greatness and the supremacy of their one and only King. This is what brings us together. This is the reason why we assemble here in unison to worship that Almighty God because there's only one King and we do belong to Him. And they will be all priests from all the races and languages and nations. But they will all be full-time worshippers. Right? That's your destiny. That's your destiny. If you don't know why you are living in this world, well, I just gave you a reason. I just answered that question for you. If you believe in Jesus, you are a full-time worshipper. Whatever you do is rendering worship to that one king. Jesus died to ransom subjects for the king and worshippers for the king from all races and languages. You can see the vision fulfilled in verses 13 and 14. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. You better memorize that verse because one day you will be asked to sing it. We will all sing it together. You better know ahead of time when you're being asked to sing in heaven. Here it is. Here's the text. Here are the lyrics. And you can sing it in English. I probably will sing it in German. I don't know the language which Pastor Werner will use. <laughs> I'm going to sing in German. And four living creatures kept saying, Amen. Amen means, yes, it is true. This is what the meaning of Amen is. Yes, it is true. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is what all creation was designed for. And Revelation 5 verse 9 says that the reason Christ died and is worthy to bring creation to its great climax is that he ransomed people from all tribes and languages to praise God as priests. But will not be sent to hell that God is sinners once they have died will be punished endlessly for their lifelong rebellion against the Almighty. No! Christ bought with his own blood a people for himself 
from every corner of the world to glorify God the Father as His anointed priests. Now, that is, that is what history is about. I love history. <laughs> and you, all, some of you already know that, right? <laughs> now you know the true meaning of history. The real reason why there is such a thing as history. So that Jesus could ransom for himself a people of God who would be worshipping God the Almighty as priests forever and ever. You better get busy. Once you are saved, this is what you are going to do. Or, if you are saved, this is what you have been doing and continue to do in all eternity. This is the meaning of all created things. All things exist by Christ and through Christ and for Christ. Remember Colossians 1 verse 16? All things exist by Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. And for the Father who sits upon the throne, for Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Romans 11, 36. This is the meaning of history. This is the meaning of being a German, an American, a Belgian, an Australian. It is the most profound purpose of our lives in this and the next world. Joyfully and blissfully here, now, and in heaven, if you believe in Christ, or begrudgingly and without hope here and now in hell, if you reject Christ. The death of Christ was designed by God to unite races in a passion for the supremacy of Christ and of God the Father. Christ died to ransom worshippers from every race and every language. So I conclude by stressing the main point. Since Jesus is not merely a simple being like a lion or like a lamb. Not a simple being. A very complex being. A being which is so complex that it takes a whole lifetime. No, it takes all eternity to get him, get to know him better and better. Not a simple being, but it is a lion like lamb and a lamb like lion. Therefore, he is admirable. And excellent and worthy to take the scroll and open its seals and to bring this word to an end, let's repeat it, to an end for the glory of his name and the good of his people. And you can be among that number if you trust in him as your lamp and submit to him as your. Lion.
and join with all living creatures and the 24 elders and the millions of angels to worship the King of Kings with all your heart. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you, you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them are heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for the fact that we know you as the lion-like lamb and the lamb-like lion. Because this is the way how you were revealed to us in the book of Revelation. And we know now a little bit more what that means. As the Lamb, you went to Calvary. You went to the cross. You were willing to lay down your life for us. You were willing to shed your blood for us. So that we can be redeemed, ransomed. So that our, our guilt and our sin could be cleansed away and paid for. Paid for in full. So that we could receive your perfect righteousness by faith. So that you could give your spirit to us. And it is a, it is a life-giving spirit. It is your spirit. And the spirit will be with us forever and ever. That spirit will never be taken away from us. And now you enable us to bow our knees and to submit to you authority as the line of Judah. As one who sits on the throne, who has history in his right hand. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, thank you so much that you saved us. Undeserving sinners, yes. But sinners saved by the grace of God Almighty. And this is reason enough for us to bow our knees and to worship you. Knowing you have made us into a kingdom. Knowing that you have made us to be priests to fulfill our destiny in uplifting your name and glorifying your holy name. I pray that you bless this church in a mighty way to proclaim that message in Melbourne and at other places so that other people will be saved and see Jesus as Jesus is to be seen. A mighty Savior. Ready to save. Amen.